Ryan Stanton here with ASEP Frontline. Joined today, ASEP 22 here in San Francisco, California. And um, we're, we got us a, we love to do when we get the opportunities here at Scientific Assembly to do the, uh, the literature, or as one of my, uh, one of my um, uh, attendings, as resident literature, uh, you should say. We're going to get an update on what's going on and what could be potentially changing our practice. And so joined today by Dr. Clayton Kazan and got his talk on really something that's interesting to me as a uh, EMS medical director. And he's got the recent EMS literature or literature, controversies and evolving concepts. So uh, first and foremost, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, get a little background so people know who we're talking to. Uh, my name's Clayton Kazan. I uh, got my start in EMS as a little five-year-old watching emergency as a little kid with my plastic red fire helmet on and my nine-inch black and white TV. Uh, watching emergency, all I wanted to be was firefighter paramedic Johnny Gage. Somehow, the way that things worked out ended up becoming Dr. Brackett instead. But uh, I got my start in medicine as an EMT at UCLA back in 1994 and uh, really loved that. Went to med school to become an emergency physician didn't really have much thought about being an EMS physician because I didn't really know what that was until I met my predecessor in my current job when I was a resident. And uh, yeah, in 2015, I like to say I, I got to embrace my inner EMS geek and became the full-time medical director for the Los Angeles County Fire Department. So full well, circle. I'll be in there with you, uh, back with you here coming in the uh, in early February uh, when we bring NASCAR back to the Coliseum. Oh, awesome. I was there last year, and you'll be with my uh, counterpart over at the city. Okay, well, you can come over too. Yeah, well, I'm happy to have you. So, get us a little breakdown of some of these uh, practice, potentially practice changing, shifting areas of uh, literature in EMS. Well, so I, when I gave my talk, I took it more from the perspective of kind of where where do we stand right now, and where does the system need to go? Um, to me, and I still practice in the emergency department too. To me. The system has been unsustainable and on an unsustainable path for the last you know, 15, 17 years that I've been in practice where you come to work and you see people out there waiting for seven or eight hours at a time. It's really hard to, to say that we can continue down that path where there are more and more visits in the ED and more and more calls to EMS. So what does the system need to do? One of the things that the system needs to start embracing is that not every person who calls 911 needs to go to an emergency department. And we need to start off-ramping things, getting people to appropriate levels of care, not just because it's in their best interest, which it often is in their best interest, but because the system just can't sustain our current trajectory. And we had talked about, you know, with EMS-wise, you know, it's always been the traditional you call, we haul kind of uh, response. And we are now seeing, especially with some of the new programs coming up, and potentially uh, treating at the scene, evaluating, leaving, or even potentially uh, different destination sites. Um, you know, with our community paramedicine in Lexington changing up some of the things that we do and those considerations. So, you know, dive a little bit more into that of the whole fact that we're not we're kind of deviating from that call and haul kind of mindset. You know, it, it's funny, and I think a lot of emergency physicians probably don't know that EMS still exists at the federal level under NHTSA, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration. So it's still really viewed as a transport resource, not so much as a professional medical resource. Mm -hmm. So there's been a, a shift over the last 15 or 20 years to really push EMS more as a profession, not so much uh, a job or an occupation. 
But if you look at, at EMS more as mobile health, and you think about all the things that EMS can offer for patients that uh, the fixed location places like a hospital just can't offer. We're really going into their homes, seeing all the social determinants of their health live in person, being able to interact in that type of manner. And then if we're upstream of all the resource that we put into the hospital and make some changes in that upstream world, we can have really huge impacts in their care. So in uh, whether it be community paramedicine, whether it be sending out advanced practitioners, whether it be engaging with social workers, um, homeless health advocates, all these different things upstream can make huge impacts in their care before they ever touch the hospital. So we've been talking about that a lot with, you know, moving the care closer to the patient. You know, traditionally, um, it's been you know, care, some care initiated, but very much a once they arrive in the emergency department uh, or, you know, even in the uh, past days of emergency medicine being more of just a preliminary with everything, most other things happening upon hospitalization, you know, more and more is, is falling on, uh, on us, but also understanding that the volumes that we're seeing, the call rates, the uh, diversity of acuity that's being seen, you know, that we need to have those full cadre of options to help take care of the patients, but of course, you know, being aware of some of the risks associated with uh, signing folks out, um, the number one, um, the number one risk to the medical director themselves being that signed out patient. Um, what are some of the other uh, things that you, you focused on with in terms of the uh, EMS, uh, EMS literature? Well, I've got now, I can't even hardly say it anymore. Literature? It's literature. It's getting towards the end of the day, and so now it's just, there's, I'm, I'm good for about two syllables after that. It's, it's a crapshoot. The way I look at, at the, the way the EMS literature has been going, it kind of goes in two different directions. So we have a lot of work on the high acuity side, so things like uh, eCPR or ECMO CPR, the movement to, uh, number one, do more TOR, so um, pronouncing patients in the field rather than mm -hmm. transporting cardiac arrest patients that have no potential outcomes. But on the flip side of that, identifying some cardiac arrest patients that actually might have an opportunity if we can get them to a center that can really provide this high-level care and figuring out how we get a patient there. So identifying which patient population this is, uh, getting the right equipment on scene, building these systems of care so that we can deliver them to, to places that can provide ECMO and things like that. And there's, there is EMS literature coming out for some of this high acuity stuff. In, in LA County, we're working with a mobile stroke unit. There's been a lot of research that's been going out about whether mobile stroke units have a place in the EMS setting. So that's sort of on the high acuity side of things. And on the lower acuity side of things, that's where things like community paramedicine, mm -hmm. alternate destinations, all this other stuff comes in where uh, to try and build out our toolbox. Because right now in LA County Fire, we have a two tool toolbox. We have EMTs and paramedics. One of the things I've been pushing is that, and we, there was a lot of talk here at the conference about physician burnout. As call volume continues to rise, and in 2022, we were currently 7% over where we were in 2021, which was our busiest year to date. What, one of the things that's driving burnout is the fact that we're sending paramedics and EMTs on calls where they have nothing to offer the patient. Mm -hmm. If you have a patient with chronic abdominal pain, this is their fifth visit in the last three months, they have legitimate needs, but they can't get in to see the gastroenterologist there's nothing for a paramedic or EMT to offer them other than a ride. And continuing to let that call volume spin out of control, more on the low acuity side than the high acuity side, 
I think is really contributing to their burnout because there's just nothing for them to offer. It's amazing that the our numbers are the exact same, that 7% increase across country that, you know, even separated by significant distance and, and demographic uh, differences, um, you know, the numbers, the increase is still the same uh, pretty much across the country. And, you know, that being said, you know, with you mentioned some of that alter, you know, because we, a lot of cases, we were sending both a first responder or an ALS truck and an ambulance. And so we actually just recently stopped sending an ambulance to the slumped over the wheel. Now, slumped over the wheel uh, was often somebody that was just hanging out, sleeping, you know, or the car wasn't there anymore, the patient wasn't there anymore. And so it was a a trip that very rarely, about 5% of them, had something actually emergent, so an overdose or whatever it is. So we started sending an ALS truck, so they're still getting a paramedic, but it's a paramedic from a fire truck that's not making near as many runs during the day. And if they need the EC, then they call for it and have them come out and do their, do their work. But it is really about getting the right people to that patient at the right time. Field terminations, you know, it's been a conversation on uh, EMS docs that I just had this last week talking about you know, pulse forms and DNRs and getting online medical control and, and, and um, you know, we're in one of the, I'm in one of the states where, you know, you have to have the original EMS pulse form um, and make it readily available. And so you've got families there, somebody's, you know, we'll just say the case of a hospice patient, everything should be there, but they can't find it. All the family wants to terminate or, or to not resuscitate. And, but the state then says, no, you can't, you have to resuscitate and bring in. And so opening up that door to call me and say, hey, here's where, every, here, where everybody is, um, making sure that, you, you know, you do, um, that, that everything, that, that we can go ahead and terminate and do, do the patient's wishes and such. So, you know, that, those are the type of things, the evolution of EMS not being a static approach is really kind of where we're going. Yeah, it's funny. People take for granted the whole EMS system. Uh, the 911 system is less than 50 years old. Mm-hmm. Paramedics have been around for about 52 years. And it's funny how quickly we get to the point where we take that for granted that we just will, we can call 911 and paramedics will be at our doorstep in a matter of a few minutes. And it is amazing how hard it was for the, liter- for the um, legislation to get passed to allow them to exist and how much we are still handcuffed to that legislation and how difficult it is still. It's such a minefield to go to try to get any new legislation passed, especially if it expands any scope of practice that is a hard no for so many people. So this is another opportunity. What I love about ASAP 22 is, you know, having folks, friends uh, that we finally get to see again in person coming by. So we've had several come by. So uh, Dr. Sue just came by and I'm doing one of our uh, keychains. So listen, if you're, you're for next year in Philadelphia, join us and uh, come come visit us at the booth. Um, but we're you know with with EMS with that tailoring of the practice, updating, you know, a relatively young professional. It's just like us. I mean, we're just, you know, we're EMS is just a few years younger than emergency medicine. And so, you know, you get your wheels under, you become a strong profession, then you build and then you evolve based on the demands, the needs, and the expertise of, of the people that are providing that care. Um, with that aspect of EMS, where do we see, is there anything that we're seeing other than that tailoring our responses? Um, that may change the way we're doing our work or where we're going to see it in the future. Because I'm personally still seeing this idea that we're going to be pushing uh, EMS closer to the patient, to the forefront, I mean, to the uh, getting as much care as possible there. What do you see as the future uh, moving forward? 
I, I actually built out this model. I was just as a thought exercise a while back where I view, instead of considering EMS just by itself, if you think about mobile health with EMS as a service line under mobile health. So let paramedics and EMTs be paramedics and EMTs, taking care of the high, acute, high acuity stuff that they do so well. Um, I mean, paramedics run a cardiac arrest probably better than almost anybody. Mm -hmm. But let's start distilling out those calls for them and let's start building out the toolbox. So our partners over at LA City have uh, started a sober unit. So they actually have a specialty unit that goes out to, to pick up patients that are inebriated, get them to a sobering center. We have now mental health units that go out. So let's start sending the right tool uh, out to the patient and let's start looking more at how do we manage low acuity things where they are so that we don't have to over, overload our already saturated emergency department system and we can redirect things to appropriate levels of care. We have run into a lot of pushback, including from some of the emergency physician groups, mm -hmm. because I, and I understand why. I, I used to be an ED director myself, so I understand that it represents a financial threat to the emergency departments. But if we continue on this current path where people are waiting for eons in the waiting room, uh, and then it, we are short-staffed on the nursing side, we're short-staffed in the EMS world, it's just not sustainable. And it's, not, it's hard to argue that it's really what's in the best interest of the lowest acuity patients to keep running them into the emergency department, especially by ambulance. And so you're also, you know, of course, right now we are just after um, Hurricane Ian. Is it Ian? Ian. Yeah, I got the letters mixed up in my head. And so you're also discussing here, um, you know, the, some of the disasters in review. And that's, you know, of course, something that's now several people, friends that I know here were late to the conference because they were getting ready to respond, some that aren't here because they have responded. Give us a little background uh, on that conversation that you're having on the disasters. It's, it's funny, and I actually told this in my talk because, you know, as part when you prepare a talk for ASAP, you have to submit your slides mm -hmm. well in advance. Mm -hmm. So when it was disasters in review, I go, well, what happens if there's a disaster after I submit my slides? It's going to make me look really dated. And so I got up there and I went, well, maybe some of you guys have heard that uh, a hurricane just passed and it's not going to be in my slides today because I had to submit them far in advance. But um, I talked about how in the emergency department, we, we, we need a couple of things. We need, number one, we need the hospitals to be more organized about their disaster work. And imagine, you know, for those of you guys who work night shifts, when was the last time there was a disaster drill on night shift? We always do it during the day. Yeah, when was the last time there was a disaster drill on a Saturday? You know, it doesn't happen, but when do the disasters tend to happen? They tend to happen off hours when you don't expect them. The other thing that I was pushing was drill, drill, drill. So look at things like these uh, domestic acts of terrorism, whether it be mass shootings, but you know, and, and as, as much as there's been a good push on gun control and things like that, just realize that even if you take the guns away, it's not changing whatever's driving these. People will find another weapon, whether it's their car, whether it's a bomb, or whether it's whatever, and just, just be prepared. When you walk in your emergency department, take a look and ask, what would you do if suddenly you had 50 patients coming in from an emergency and, and have at least the thought exercise with your team about what you would do. One of the great things I read after the, uh, the Las Vegas shooting was that one of the emergency physicians had written that that was just a thought exercise he routinely did. And when it actually was thrust upon him, he just immediately acted on exactly as he had mentally prepared. And it went, I mean, as well as you can imagine something like that going. 
the other thing that I was pushing was we have to recognize the slow brewing disasters. So during our COVID surges, we would see hospitals try to stretch their normal operations to try to fit this giant patient surge when the reality is it was a disaster. If the same thing had happened with a plane crash, you would not expect the hospital to maintain normal operations. They would call the code triage and do what they need to do. Mm -hmm. But in the setting of some of these COVID surges, we got so used to it that we would try to stretch normal operations and it would fail and we'd have long wall times. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the big things for us, uh, being in central Kentucky with Richmond uh, nearby with one of the uh, chemical biological weapon stockpiles that are now decomm decommissioning, you know, getting the CSEP drills, uh, which we just did right before I came out here, uh, getting all those organizations. But, you know, not only just what you're talking about with on a Saturday and after hours, which like two thirds of all the hours are after hours, uh, or you know, overnight weekends, holidays, those types of things, um, is you know the idea of, of practicing you know not just tabletop or, or thinking through it, which is important just to kind of run through how you would manage it in your mind, but also when you are drilling and practicing, you know being able to make things realistic. And you know we did a podcast a couple of days ago, and we were talking about how some of the training for pediatric critical illnesses, and they would actually get purposely worked up and kind of yell and, and do things to kind of get people on tilt to kind of make sure they can still kind of stay focused, calm, and, and, and manage the scene appropriately. And that is one of the big challenges is, you know, you can practice a lot, but if you don't practice reality in a way reality, then it isn't going to be the exact same, like the expectation that all communication is going to work just fine. All the power is just going to work fine. You see that with now uh, after Katrina with the five days of memorial show that's out. You know, what do you really do when, you know, you've lost the basics that you need, the power, the water, uh, toilet, uh, communications, and then it lasts a lot longer than you thought it was going to last, than that you planned for it to last. Like, hey, there shouldn't be any issues, and uh, after 48 hours, we're gonna, it's going to be completely resolved and we'll be fine. Like, oh, yeah, by the way, no, it's going to be five days at least, and then we go from there. Well, and those of you who have uh, done active shooter drill, that's terrific. You should prepare for that possibility. But if in your active shooter drill it did not include the sound of gunshots, uh, having done both, the sound of gunshots changes everything and people freeze. Um, I, I don't even own a gun. I've never fired a gun. So taking being as a part of an active shooter drill at a school where the sheriffs brought out, uh, they were firing blanks, and you hear what it sounds like when a semi-automatic we weapon is being fired, uh, it, it changes the whole dynamic. So if you do a tabletop where you go, we're going to do run, hide, fight, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to, you know, run from the emergency department. We're going to go out the exits and stuff. But when, if you actually add into that the sound of gunfire, um, it's completely different. Oh, not not even just even the sound, um, but you know the some of the the everything about it, the 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 sound, the smell, the pressure change. You know, whatever there is that's involved, um, that it's it's sensory from a sensory standpoint is very different. And kind of throws you off, and especially when it automatically throws you into that brainstem-based, not really super higher-level thinking fight-or-flight response. You know, that's that's what we have. That's what the whole purpose of training is, to where we can maintain that higher-level cognitive thinking, decision-making, and not simply on the fight-or-flight. You know, the, the sweating, dilated pupils, heart rate, blood pressure up, and ready to go run through a wall. Uh, but really, is about how do we keep calm to where we can make those decisions, those critical decisions that we need to make. And as emergency medicine physicians and paramedics, very similar, 
you get used to that. You do compensate well because you're used to chaotic environments where normally people will panic and stress out. And that's one of our features that's really good is staying calm in these times when a lot of people panic and, and, and freak out. And that's probably why we are able to go into these rooms and do these things when, and kind of keep a level head throughout. Yeah, I think uh, the, the fire service and EMS in general does a nice job of drilling to be prepared for these types of circumstances. Um, but sometimes we fall into other things too where in, in our department, we may not necessarily train on stuff because we feel like we do it every day so we don't really need to train on it. Uh, of course, that's not true because even when you're doing it every day, you may not be doing it optimally and you still need to practice on those rare things, those high intensity, low frequency type events. In the emergency department, it's not often that we drill. We come and work our shifts, see our patients, and go home. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is important to break out the toys every once in a while, dust off the equipment, and actually drill for what you would do under these circumstances. I don't work in a trauma center anymore. Um, I don't know that our, our system, our emergency department would be very equipped if we had to deal with 10 gunshot wounds because there was a mass event and we became a trauma center temporarily because the trauma center was saturated. Um, Again, dealing with this kind of stuff, practicing with it periodically, the fire service and EMS does a great job. The emergency department system, at least in my system, not so much. Yeah, and in the mindset that, uh, you know, hospitals often say, well, we're not a trauma center, we're not a pediatric center, so, you know, don't practice it, don't have all the stuff, but, you know, remember you still have doors and an ambulance bay and, and a big red sign, and that's actually what Dr. Sacchetti said, is when you're driving with somebody, you know, a really sick kid, you see that big red emergency sign, they don't care if you're a PEAT-specific center, you are help. And so uh, when I was, we had a gun, uh, you know, uh, the inner city hospital ER that I worked in when I first came out of residency, we had a gunshot, actually three, that were shot right across, and the police officer that was first there, he just grabbed the victims and just drug them up to our hospital and came through the door. And we were the community hospital. We didn't do trauma, didn't do all this other stuff. And so, you know, just the sheer panic and, and not being ready for those types of things. You always have to be ready. Now, it doesn't say you have to have, you know, 8,000 things that are really fresh right there and push all the common stuff out of the way. It is just about being prepared and having those strategies and arrangement and design to where if something were to happen, you could jump in and make that plan happen pretty quickly. Um, one of the final uh, things that uh, you discussed while here um, at uh, ASAP 22 which congratulations not having to travel very far, um, <laughs> is you know teaching others to, to save a life. Now, is this based on uh, edu helping educate the public as assistance, or is this? I took it as a little bit of both. I, okay. I took it as, an, you know, pre-pandemic, if you said, you know, how much public health is involved in your job in EMS? I would have said, you know, not very much. We advocate for you know, training on CPR and things like that. And then, of course, COVID hits, and now, we're viewed as a thought leader about, okay, when do, when do people need to call 911? When do people need to go to the emergency department? What about these vaccines? And next thing you know, we are thrust right into public health. So uh, with this talk, I took the stance that, number one, emergency physicians are very trusted in the community. Um, there is, despite all the, the division and everything, people trust that when they go to the emergency department, if they have a life-threatening illness that the physicians are competent and they're gonna be able to handle it. So take advantage of that and reach out in the community to see what you can do to, to help train the public for things like hands-only CPR, um, advocate for public access AEDs, advocate for things like PulsePoint and other apps that, that help alert people that there's a cardiac arrest that people can respond to and help, uh, help improve. 
So use that position for advocacy. And then I also spun it and said, you know, what about you when you are the rescuer, when you're at the supermarket and you are jumping in to try to help somebody, be careful not to tunnel in on things like, um, so let's say uh, there's a cardiac arrest and you start doing, or someone's bleeding, and you start you know, working with that person, remember that you're not at your hospital anymore. You need to call in the cavalry because you're not used to needing to call in for transport because the only thing that transport does in your hospital is take people upstairs. Mm -hmm. But when you're in the supermarket, you're gonna need to get in help quickly. And that's, while that's not the first thing you normally would do in the emergency department, that is something you need to do in the, in the pre-hospital setting. So we talked a little bit about tunnel, tunnel vision and, and how you need to activate those types of things and how you need to understand what protocols your paramedics are working with. So when EMS does arrive and you start calling out for, hey, this is a stroke patient with a really high blood pressure, I think they have a bleed and you need to get them on nicardipine, uh, you better know that there isn't nicardipine in your paramedic scope of practice in your state or in your county. So be careful how much you direct them. Know what their basic protocols are. And if you need to direct beyond anything beyond those protocols, you're going to have to accompany the patient. Well, and also conversely, understanding that um, with the exception of those that are rather facile at the uh, EMS side of things and riding along and, and doing those things, when those paramedics, which would be in theory below your below your level of degree they still do this every single day they're on the streets every single day that is their job their profession and so in many ways and for many physicians they will be better and more prepared for that scene so helping and supporting and doing what you need to do to assist with your skill set but also trusting and, and supporting and facilitating uh, the men and women that do that as their profession as their job and, you know, talking with my paramedics when we're out and about, you know, it's kind of, it's just like the airplane. The airplane says, is there a doctor on the plane? They kind of don't wish, they kind of wish you didn't, there was nobody on there because then they get to try, they get to go to their docks that are in Oklahoma City and, and it leaves them a lot more latitude in terms of things that they can do. But, you know, it's like when you're at a scene and somebody comes up and says, I'm a doctor and they're, you know, their first thought in EMS is, well, what kind? Because there's a clear difference in an EMS boarded, emergency physician versus a, you know. Clock on flight. Yeah, well, oh yeah, yeah, as he, as he mentioned here, as he yeah. mentioned here, in that type of situation, or a, or a patho cell pathologist, or whatever it may be. Um, you know, so, you know, being aware of, of being there to help uh, and support and do those things, but also facilitating and not hindering the care that those, uh, that the professionals uh, are gonna provide at that scene. And often, you know, remember, in many, many locales and, and once you engage in significantly within the care, you're going all the way. Um, you can't just transition because of the, of the laws and there's still that page in our protocols where if you decide you want to completely take over care of the patient, especially if it's not with our protocols, we have you sign the form and that patient is then yours um, you know, because of the uh, potential legalities and, and the restrictions and also the, the protocol uh, and statute type limitations. With all the baggage that accompanies that. Yes, yeah, welcome, uh, so congratulations. I do the, uh, the first year resident EMS rotation for UCLA All of You, which is my, my uh -huh. alma mater for residency. And one of the big takeaways, I go, I go try to meet with them, although it's been a lot harder with the pandemic. But uh, when I would meet with them, a lot of times I'd have them spend a day with me just to see the administrative side of EMS. And I know most of them have no desire to do EMS. They're gonna go off, they're gonna either do a fellowship in something else, or they're gonna go be you know pit ER physician somewhere. 
But what I tell them, I want you to get out of this is I want you to see, number one, that the field is a completely different space. Mm -hmm. So it's not an emergency department on wheels. It is entirely different than an emergency department. And the skill set's very different. But the other thing I want them to see is that the, there are physician-based protocols that we, there's a whole system that is uh, led by physicians in the EMS world uh, to help, and it's evidence-based, and it's, we meet together to talk about what direction the system should be going. We build out the protocols, we build out the training for them, we support them, we build out everything from dispatch all the way to handoff of care that I don't want people to think that there isn't the system that paramedics go rogue and they go just decide what they're going to do, that there is a whole system behind uh, EMS that they may not be aware of. Well, and I find that with students, um, whether it's, you know, no matter what level of students, you know, for them being able to see that side and to experience the challenges that you face of trying to stabilize and innovate a patient who's wedged between a toilet and a, and a, a toilet and a bathtub, you know, these, some of these living conditions that they're dealing with, hoarder situations, infestations, houses that should be condemned or have been, um, understanding and seeing that environment. I, and, you know, I think our residents, especially in emergency medicine, need to have that extensive exposure to EMS, you know, rural settings and EMS settings, just to see some of the challenges so you have that respect when they come in with those patients of some of the scenes and things that they experience. And I think that often will change the interactions. Uh, I think one of the main reasons I ended up with my job with Lexington Fire is I changed the way we treat EMS, uh, EMS professionals when they came to my emergency department. We didn't tolerate them degrading them anymore and waiting or ignoring them or whatever it was. You know, we cha completely changed the approach and mindset of EMS, saying we're a team. We may, you know, have on different uniforms, but we're on the same team with regard to the care for the patient. Well, I think it's funny. In the emergency department, we know it's the fishbowl, right? Everyone's on the outside looking in. No one quite understands what it's like to work in our space, but they all have opinions on it. And so it's funny to see us in the emergency department sometimes turn that same kind of view on the EMS that, okay, nobody understands the emergency department like we do, but yet we understand EMS. Yeah, and we so understand we're, your job. Yeah, so we're going to tell you, like, oh, you know, your, your crew came in, and they were probably just trying to get back to their easy chairs so they could watch the football <laughs> game. And you go, you know, have you actually gone and spent time with these crews? I, I still remember from about two years ago, I got an email from a person who was a self-identified EMS physician who was saying, laid out his credentials in the email that I used to work here and I used to work there, so I understand EMS. And your crews were just trying to get back to their lazy boy chairs so they could watch the football game, clearly in this case. And it was absolutely not true. It's funny how we hate when a patient goes upstairs and they get diagnosed with sepsis because they spike a fever upstairs that they didn't do in their eight hours in my emergency department. And then suddenly that outcome bias of, we found out your patient had sepsis, thus you missed the diagnosis of sepsis. And we look and go, you know, that's so unfair. They, they have no idea what it's like to actually work in this environment. And yet I still get emails. I got another one last week of, hey, your, pa your paramedics, because suddenly I own them, mm -hmm. your paramedics sent us in via BLS ambulance a patient with a subdural hematoma. And you go, well, but my paramedics don't have a CT scanner. Did you diagnose the subdural hematoma prior to CT or after CT? And it's just so funny how outcome bias just keeps flowing down the chain. So we hate it when people do it to us, but then we in the emergency department turn and do it right back to EMS.
Yeah, absolutely. Well, in that, and if you're in a multi-hospital um, coverage area district, um, you know, the idea that, uh, that EMS is one, picking on you and only coming to your hospital. And that's been universal. So one of the things we do meetings, I'll do the graphs and breakdowns of the percentages, where they've been, what's the historical uh, benchmarks for where those numbers have been. And say, yep, in the last five years, we've changed, it's changed 1%. Um, and, you know, everybody's volume's up, but everybody's getting that increase right now. And, you know, to see that, and it's like, well, I think they're just picking on us today. So, yes, that's exactly what EMS professionals, what paramedics, EMTs do, is they go out there and recruit painful patients so they can punish you in your emergency yeah. department. It seems like it. They're just writhing their hands waiting for the next time they get to punish your hospital. Yeah, yeah but they're, they're getting the same calls you are. Theirs just come over the radio, and yours come when they arrive at your front door or when they walk up to your desk. That's like that's the, the APOD issue, too, right, which is the ambulance patient offload times and delays, yeah. and they go... You know, there's nothing we can do about these ambulances. They're, they're just going to have to wait. And you go, okay, that's fine. Um, but when the next person calls 911, who, who do you think is supposed to go pick them up? Uh, I, I understand, believe me, I understand the ER side of the challenge, which is I have to find a bed for people. I don't have nurses. I don't have techs. And yet they just keep coming. But the flip side of that is imagine if we did the same thing in reverse. Because, you know, EMS gets really busy too. It's not, it's not a unique feature to the hospitals. We get surges, we get things just like that. And imagine on a busy day, if we came to your hospital staff and said, you know what, we're going to take two of your nurses and one of your doctors, because we're really busy right now. We're just going to go take them. We're going to put them on an ambulance and have them go respond out in the field. And you guys are going to have to just figure it out here in the hospital. Obviously, that's not the way it works, but that is exactly what happens when our ambulances get held hostage at the hospitals. It is, we are too busy right now to manage the patient volumes that are coming into our hospitals, so we're going to take your crews away and make your crews sort of, we're going to um, make them obligate members of the ED staff right now. And as far as all these surges of 911 calls in the field, you guys are going to have to just figure that out. And we're seeing that a lot. Uh, and there's actually the recent podcast on the Novant, uh, Novant Health in um, in. Um, Wilmington, North Carolina, you know, with, with the challenges they had and, and EMS being on hold in the hallway for four and five and six hours, you know, waiting for a bed. Do you, do you know what our record wall time was? It's just during the pandemic, the highest I've ever seen. And we had two patients held at the same time. It was 25 hours. What? 25 hours. Finally, what happened was the ambulance company sent a supervisor in. They put the patients on ER stretchers. And this, the, the EMS supervisor sat with the patients so those two ambulances could go back in the service. But they did not take over for that supervisor for 25 hours. Yeah, that's, that's insane. And I think, you know, it, once hospitals start to have issues, because a lot of times in this story uh, from Wilmington, you know, that the issue was they didn't register those patients. And so on the board, they had, they had patients that apparently left again, you know, they left without being seen. And on the, their board, it showed 19 minutes, but it had actually been five hours because they weren't registered. And so that's the challenge is if there's a bad outcome saying, well, they were what is not only is, is it potential uh, risk exposure for litigation, you're also looking at potential EMTALA violation because now you didn't provide the timely medical screening exam and the record from EMS is going to show that because now they have timestamps to demonstrate that. And I've never been a fan of um, of the of the wall holds, um, and so you know we've actually discussed if that becomes an issue if a hospital tries to start you know the penalty box of EMS of actually turning around and going to another hospital and then the hospital dealing with the EMTALA violation of now saying you didn't give an appropriate medical screening exam 
but also being an advocate for the patient to say, we need to get you the care you need, and we're not getting it while we're sitting here against the wall. And so, you know, it's, it's never, never been something that's been implemented, but, you know, that thought, that thing that says, well, what are the repercussions? What can we do if they're going to make us lean up against the wall for hours on end, 25 hours in that case, without providing care? Um, because it's clearly substandard care, but also at the same time, you know, as, as EMS professionals, you still have to advocate for that patient to get them the care, to get the care that they deserve and need. And so, you know, those are the sort of some, some things that happen to happen to change, have to happen to change that process, to change that mindset. Any closing thoughts or uh, first, you know, closing thoughts, any messages for our, um, you know, for our listeners out there, but also finally uh, contact information that you may have. I've already got your Twitter uh, looked up here. You, you can tell when we recorded this because you can actually look up a picture of while uh, Clayton was talking that I took and actually posted on Twitter while we're recording this so you can see when we actually recorded this. Uh, you know, the biggest thing I would say is I have a lot of concerns. I mean, I have concerns about the future of our system, but I think we, it, it feels like these days we just kind of move from one crisis to the next and everything's a crisis. And it really, we're going to have to just play the long game and try to um, endure and let the system evolve. But the biggest concern I have, and I have this for our brothers and sisters across EMS and across the, uh, the emergency departments, is burnout. Mm -hmm. um, so what I would say is, you know, what, to, to quote Mel Herbert, of course, from EM Rap all the time, you know, what you do matters. Even in these cases where you have someone who is what would might be described as a frequent flyer or someone that's got a complaint that clearly doesn't seem to need the emergency department, just know that when your interaction with that patient really does make a difference in that person's life. Um, even if it is something that's not really an emergency, but you can provide solace or comfort to them in that time, it really does make a difference. And I try to tell that to our EMS crews too, even on these calls where you know on first blush that this is someone that really doesn't need the EMS system. The fact that they called in their time of need, no matter how minor you may view it to be, but you were there, you showed up, and uh, every time we do that, when they call and we show up, that system holds together, and that system is a safety net that allows so many other things in society to happen. So just to quote Mel Herbert, what you do matters out there realize that you have a great impact on the patients that you see, not just the life-threatening ones, but all of them. And contact information, Gavin, email. Your Twitter handle is at Clayton underscore Kazan, K-A-Z-A-N, if you want to follow along on the Twitter machine. But what about email or other ways to contact you? Um, email, uh, two different emails. I'll give you my, one of my personal ones is ckazan at ucla.edu. Uh, or you can do my, uh, my work one, which is clayton.kazan at fire.lacounty.gov. So um, talking uh, with Dr. Clayton Kazan, we're talking about EMS updates and the like, and uh, wrapping up our day two of recording here at ASEP 22. Uh, I'm sure some of these will be available on the virtual ASEP if you missed, if you missed them. Um, but, you know, it's important to, to not only be engaged as an emergency physician, uh, but also getting that experience, understanding the landscape, and what's going on? I mean, we didn't even touch on the fact that, you know, that, that when we change protocols, update protocols, change the way we do things, you know, when the, if the emergency department isn't up to date on those, that research and data and evidence, then you're going to get a lot of questions and altercations. We've had quite a few of them with, uh, with ketamine in our, uh, with, with treatment of pain, um, as well as with uh, hyperactive delirium. And so, you know, it's those things that making sure that as an emergency physician, you and your staff if you're not involved with EMS, though, is still up to date with many of the protocols 
and the practices that are in your community um, because it can save a lot of issues and challenges um, if, it's, if it's something that, that's been changed. The evidence very much supports it and you didn't realize it. So as for me, you can contact me at rstanton at asep.org, rstanton at asep.org, at Everyday Med on Twitter. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. And you got the I, you got a closing thought on the. I did have a closing thought. You could just see it burning I in my brain from from Ted Lasso, and that is when it comes to things like changing protocols. And you may not have known that ketamine was a four-letter word, but it actually is. Uh, but that is when when protocols change, and you're not understanding why something's happening. Remember first to be curious, not judgmental. Absolutely, and I appreciate that. Yeah, I saw you teeing it up. And you're ready. So like, I'm not going to let this. I'm a little hamster in the by. wheel spinning in my head. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to turn off this recording before we get that final thought. Um, but make sure that everyone out there that you are subscribed to the podcast on whatever platform you like. Uh, join us each week for our new episodes. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton. And this has been some ASAP Frontline. If you're not on the front lines, you're on the sidelines.